difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts in a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with Keith Phipps, Tasha Robinson, and Genevieve Gosky. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're getting a front row seat to history with two political thrillers that recreate the past with a scrupulous attention to detail. One is the Battle of Algiers. The other is the Battle at the Algiers. Tasha, could you tell us more? Okay. So Catherine Bigelow's new film, Detroit, is her latest collaboration with journalist-turned-screenwriter Mark Boll, who wrote her last two movies, The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. All three films are fact-based thrillers that use a journalistic research process and documentary-like immediacy to bring the past to life as vividly as possible. Detroit takes place during the 1967 riots in the city of the title, but it ultimately zeroes in on an incident at the annex of the Algiers Motel, where a response to an alleged sniper fire turns into a tragic microcosm of the tension between black citizens and a racist police force. The heightened realism of Bigelow and Bull's approach owes a debt to Gilo Portocovo's 1966 film The Battle of Algiers, which covers another volatile historical moment with a newsreel quality that lends legitimacy to its point of view. But that hasn't steered either film away from criticism. Quite the contrary. The Battle of Algiers remains one of the most controversial films ever made, and Detroit may be the most controversial film of 2017. Where do we stand? You'll have to wait until Thursday, when our second episode drops, to hear what we think about Detroit. As for the Battle of Algiers, our own battle starts after this. Nous sommes arrivés à la moyenne de 4,2 attentats par jour. Oui, il faut distinguer les attaques individuelles et les attentats à la bombe. Nous disons qu'il y a une minorité qui s'impose par la terreur et la violence. Nous devons agir sur cette minorité dans le but de l'isoler et de la détruire. Battle of Algiers opens with a scene that perfectly defines its aesthetic. The first shot is of an insurgent who has just been tortured into giving up the location of the last resistance leader still at large, effectively ending the French military mission to put down the National Liberation Front, or FLN, which has organized a terrorist network to spark an Algerian independence movement. The director, Gilo Pontecorvo, doesn't show the torture itself, but we can see this gaunt, shirtless, frightened man with burns on his chest. Pontecorvo also doesn't show any emotion on the part of the torturers themselves. They've gotten the information they wanted, and their leader, Lieutenant Colonel Matthew, offers the man a change of clothes. From the French perspective, this has been an interrogation that's yielded a piece of information, part of a methodical campaign to disrupt and destroy FLN terrorist cells. It's not an occasion for sadism or retribution. And yet, it's not a scene without emotion or point of view either. Pontecorvo's camera may start from a clinical distance, but it registers the anguish of the insurgent with a powerful close-up on his tear-stained face. Pontecorvo's sympathies are wholly aligned with the rebels. The genius of the Battle of Algiers is how thoroughly it articulates the strategies and tactics of both sides of the conflict while still expressing a strong point of view. 
On the one hand, it's a film so persuasive that it required a disclaimer at the beginning to alert the audience that it was watching a work of fiction, not actual newsreel footage of the Algerian struggle for independence against the French. On the other, it's a film of such strong revolutionary fervor that it was banned for years in France and continues to be a flashpoint for discussion over the morality and utility of terrorism and torture. Pontecorvo has said that the Battle of Algiers is, quote, a more or less objective film on the subject, unquote, which is total nonsense, of course, but revealing of his shrewd aesthetic approach. The newsreel quality of the photography makes it feel objective, as does Pontecorvo's extraordinary focus on terrorist and counter-terrorist actions. But there can be no doubt that Algerian independence, seeded by the FLN-led resistance, is a goal the film celebrates unambiguously. But Pontecorvo's understanding of the conflict is nonetheless provocative. Terrorism and torture are both tactics that people of conscience decry, but the film effectively neutralizes them. The FLN targets police and civilians as an incitement to revolution. The French military tortures insurgents in order to get the information they need to break up cells and suppress the resistance. Pontecorvo accepts the value of both as necessary means to an end, but he cares deeply about what that end will be and which side is the righteous one. The Battle of Algiers may have the veracity of documentary journalism, but it's a fiery editorial at heart. Il est hors de doute que la surprenante unanimité de ces démonstrations a influencé de larges couches de l'opinion publique française. Selon des nouvelles de Paris, la partie la plus sensible des milieux politiques serait orientée vers la recherche de nouveaux rapports avec l'Algérie. So, The Battle of Algiers is one of my favorite films. I, I would say I've seen it uh, many times, but we have a couple first-timers here who have been exposed to it, uh, I think, and Genevieve and Tasha. They look like they were delighted by it. And Keith, I think you've seen it I've seen before it. as well. Yeah. Um, what are your impressions? Uh, who wants to go first? Genevieve has her finger on the nose in the not-it posture, <laughs> and uh, I'm contemplating how I would prefer torture. It, this is a tremendously effective film. I, I mean, it's beautifully shot. The black and white is, is incredibly intense. The staging is incredibly intense. The I see why they needed a disclaimer to say that it wasn't documentary. The scenes towards the end of uh, public disputes and the police gunning people down are so believable in a documentary fashion and so immersive. I mean, you can actually feel it. I didn't love it as a film in toto, I think, in part just because of the lack of a sense of any strong characters or any strong point of view. I had a perpetual desire to have some idea of what was going on in these people's heads. Mm. For instance, uh, the character of the child Omar, who very early on in, in childhood is running messages for the Liberation Front, um, who is very excited to get front and center in the middle of things and is just delighted towards the end of the film when practically everybody is dead and he has to step up. That is such a compelling and horrifying like window into the movie. But I have no idea who that kid is, like what he wants. Does he believe any of this? Does he come from a family that believes it? I wanted more perspective on some of these characters. And I wanted the story to be less, less diffuse and random. So it's not going to leap to the top of my favorite film list, certainly. But, no, I don't, um, ex- I don't expect everyone to value it as much as I do. But but I really recognize both the, the art in it and the power of it. Yeah, I think it's like a tremendous film that was not a tremendous viewing experience for me, just because it felt more like something I was studying than something that I was feeling an emotional connection to, in part for the reasons you state, Tasha. Although I think the lack of characterization for it bothered me a little less because I think it was very intentional on the part of the film in terms of trying to create 
a bigger picture and maybe not necessarily inviting viewers to too strongly empathize with one specific experience and in favor of showing the broader picture that we are supposed to understand and empathize with uh, in our own way. So I don't know. It's just it's a difficult film. And it's like one where I kept being torn between admiring the filmmaking and the intent behind it while not enjoying it in the least. (laughs) So... I mean, yeah, enjoy is tough, but I see where you're coming from, but I feel like it's a film that is more concerned with defining these characters by actions than some sort of inner life. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, John Paul Sartre gets a reference somewhat hilariously in this, like, why well, the Sartre's always on, on your side. But, <laughs> but I mean, it is in some ways, it's, it's kind of an existential film where, you know, inner lives aren't matter so much as, as what they do. And, and, and I think that's, that's kind of interesting, too. For me, it's a film of shifting I think perspectives shift, and and I think ultimately the sympathies lie pretty clearly with with the revolutionaries. But you know, I, I really feel like you're you're not sugarcoating the horrors of what's being done here. I mean, there's no no close not ups at all. of children before they're being blown up, and and I don't know, you know, I don't feel like the film. You know, there's sort of like recognizes the tragic inevitability of this process. It's spiraling out of control and toward a conclusion that, that does not end with, with, you know, it ends with the revolutionaries winning. But I don't know that there's, there's any, there's no celebratory uh, quality to it at all. Well, I mean, oh, at the, the, the end, ending, I think there is. Yeah, well, the, the, pe- the people are celebrating. And I feel yeah. the outcome is sort of one, one of the film approves of. But the process of getting there is so horrific that those images and that the feelings you have uh, for what's being done on both sides doesn't just lift with with the celebration at the end. And I don't feel that celebration very strongly as a celebration because so little time is spent on it. I mean, there's the moment where the protesters are charging the guards and you, you almost feel like, okay, the tide is turning, but it's almost immediately followed by the guards just gunning down dozens of people in cold blood. And the the moment of celebration is, it feels like a coda at the end, like a, a momentary afterthought after this horrible slaughter. I mean, it is a coda in the sense that it, we're talking about years later, and the implication being that all of these actions that have taken place are basically the seeds that have borne this fruit, which is a successful rebellion, ultimately, that even though the French were successful in suppressing the FLN, there was a revolutionary spark that was that was struck here that led to the desired outcome. That's the film's perspective on terrorism, basically. And it's just, you know, what kind of blows my mind. I mean, I'll, I'll make a couple of points. I mean, one, re- with regard to characterization, I just don't think it's the, in the film's interest. It's not, it's about movements more than it's about people. I think you get some sketching, sketch work, I think effective sketch work with regard to a character like Ali LaPointe, who is uh, somebody who starts in the beginning of the film as a card sharp and uh, a sinner who goes to prison, is radicalized and comes out and becomes an important part of the movement and is is the last person who, who is caught. But I think if you want a richer articulation of that type of character you'd see a film like a prophet for example or city of god which this kept reminding me of. sure sure well, but on the other hand i mean i feel like the shorthand is so powerful it's like how could you not be radicalized in that situation yeah. how do you come out of that you know someone who has nothing goes into us into this and sees how the dedicated islamic people are, are, are treated and is exposed to this philosophy how do you come out of that situation not you know you need something to believe in, in that situation i think no, I, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I, th- I think it's, again, I think it's a pr- pretty much a near-perfect movie, but like, but I think there is, it's a just a narrative strategy to 
focus much more on the bigger picture of how a terrorist network works and how the French military tactics, their strategy, how that works and how, how the, those things operate together. And then, and then you know, the film itself, it's establishing a point of view on both of those aspects that I think is pretty radical, really. I mean, we, the, this is a very radical film. Yeah, I mean, it was it's it's extremely controversial at the time, and and uh, and I think it, it remains is. so. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what were your thoughts? I mean, do, this is the center of the controversy. Is Pontecorvo's acceptance of the tactical value of both terrorism and torture? Am I correct in thinking that is the film's point of view that these methods are part of? War and I, I feel like less tactical value than than sort of tragically inevitable. Hmm, okay, uh, the, but maybe those are just different ways of saying the same thing. Well, but I think that it's more accepting in the sense that you don't get some of the triumphalism, I guess, that might be associated with successful missions on either front. Mm-hmm. And you have a character like Lieutenant Colonel Matthew, who you know, who was really just focused on winning, <laughs> you know, and doing what it takes to be successful and admires his adversaries is, is is does not appear to be a sadist in any in any way it's kind of a sympathetic portrait of this character who i think if we were to look at him from another vantage place would be you know considered monstrous right i don't think that the film sympathizes with him yeah, i think either. that the film admires him i think that he is a okay. a competent and intelligent individual who engages in a variety of tactics to do his job and he just comes across as as wanting to do his job and i think that that's something that we're almost programmed to appreciate both in film and in life so i think the film doesn't necessarily approve of either his goals or necessarily his methods Although we don't really see him like go back on his word, for instance, when we when he promises somebody that they'll uh, be arrested and that they they won't be you know slaughtered in the streets, he doesn't go back on that. Mm-hmm. But sympathetic, I think, is going too far. I don't. No, think- I, 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 yeah, I misspoke. It's, sympathetic isn't correct, but I th- I, the film understands what the strategy is and accepts that that is what had to happen on there. Well, he's not the villain. He's not right, painted exactly. as and the he villain. He certainly could have easily been, and I think, I think almost any other film would have painted him as a villain. As far as the balance between uh, terrorism and torture, between blowing up small children in a cafe and torturing people for information, I, I don't agree with your police work there either, well, Lou. No. I think that... I, I, well, I think he already kind of was moving in that direction. I don't think that they're presented as efficacious or necessary or even just things that happen in war. I think that they're portrayed as horrible things that bring both sides down. I, I mean, I, I feel like both of these sides are being presented as fairly monstrous. And the fact that we don't really get into anybody's head bothers me in part because I think we're seeing, I don't like the word evil. I don't use the Mm. word evil very often. But when you're talking about somebody looking to the eyes of toddlers and then murdering them, you're talking about a particular kind of evil. And what is interesting to me in a story like that is the attempt to come to grips with it, to understand what it is and how it happens. And when you don't really have any sense for the characters apart from a progression of things that they do, I'm not really sure what you're saying that that makes it meaningful apart from this happened and it's portrayed extremely well. Going back to Lieutenant Colonel Matthew, like I see him almost as a figure of 
maybe not quite irony, but like illustrating the sort of cyclical nature of oppression and revolution. Like there's that one line he has, um, I'm, I'm going to read it, pretend I'm saying it in French, but where he says, <laughs> we aren't madmen or sadists, gentlemen. Those who call us fascists today forget the contribution that many of us made to the resistance. Those who call us Nazis don't know that among us there are survivors of, of Dachau and Buchenwald. We are soldiers and our only duty is to win. That last part, we are soldiers and our only duty is to win, can very easily be translated translated on to the FLN and, and the characters in there. And I think... I mean, it can also be translated as uh, Nazis at Nuremberg saying, I was just doing what I was exactly, told. Exactly. And I, but, but I think that is like the point that this is getting at is that there are always going to be these dualities of good and evil, where whether you are good or evil is all dependent on how it is relevant to your life and the position you are in, whether that is your job or because you are someone who is being oppressed. You know, I think that one reason that the resistance does come across a little more sympathetic here is that we're also we're very programmed to root for the underdog and they're certainly the underdogs. Mm -hmm. But also we see more systemic abuse from the soldiers. We see some pretty graphic scenes of torture and there again, there isn't a sense of sadism. It's just sort of like, uh, this is how you operate. And that seems to be coming from a much more institutional place than the small group of women who go out with, with bombs. That, that feels, even though it is definitely coming from the organization, it feels like a much more ad hoc thing as opposed to just a, a regular part of how the uh, French forces do business. That's an interesting scene too, because movies make you root for who you're watching and in and, and some really interesting ways. And it's like you see these French soldiers being really piggish with these women and you're just sort of like, you know, they don't they don't know. You're kinda of like, hey, they're getting away with something that that's pretty cool. And then you realize what they're working toward and it's completely monstrous. I mean, this is this is a really interesting example of how movies toy with your sympathies and how they shift back and forth. Yeah, that sequence with the three women planting the bombs was easily my favorite part of the movie for as horrifying as it is, because it was, I think, probably the most extended sequence in the movie and the longest that we are like with the same characters or group of characters without interruption. And just because there is a progression to that mission, I mean, so much of the terrorism we see and the torture we see in in this movie happens very abruptly you know without a lot of build up or after effect and in the case of those bombings in following those women through that experience we do as viewers identify with them maybe not quite sympathize with them but i think we we naturally create more of a connection to them than we do with you know, the men who basically kick this all off by just like running up and shooting police in the street, you know, that is the part of this film that I was the most engaged throughout. Yeah, me too. And I, I think it's big exactly because what Keith's saying about shifting sympathies, there's that feeling of, oh, God, they're going to get caught and it's going to be terrible. Oh, wow, they're getting away with something and it's going to be awesome. And my sympathies are with them. And then each one of them, like, carefully slips their bag somewhere where it won't be found. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is, you're horrible. This and is they all, horrible. And they look around. They're, like, each each and every one of them, they have a moment where they look around and they you see the faces of everyone who is about to get blown up. Yeah, I, I admire the film for pausing to do that, too. I mean, this is not not just them doing it, but also Pontecorvo doing it. He does it, of course, you know, that early scene where the police just blow up a building and they're carrying all of these bodies out of, out of the rubble. You know, it occurs to me now that, that, that there's a distinction that Pontecorvo may be trying to draw there between 
that kind of just a you know mass killing <laughs> on, on the part of the authorities, and then what Colonel Matthews coming in and trying to trying to do and try to draw some sort of moral distinction between uh, those two tactics. But that's just a thought. The other thing I the other thing I wanted to mention with regard to I guess the um, episodic nature of the film, as you mentioned, the sequence with the with the women crossing through the checkpoint with bombs is a critical one but it's also important you know to, we have a lot of other incidents that are really where the important information that we get is uh, that it, these attacks are coordinated and happen throughout the course of a day you get titles which, which with each one saying what hour this took place and how this took place there and so so what we're monitoring in those sequences is the effectiveness of the fln to operate under different conditions, under the condition in which they, they are just completely free to commit violence. And then and then later, when they really have to demonstrate uh, to the authorities that they can get around the checkpoints in, in creative ways and do some damage there. So I think it all kind of coheres a little bit more that way, too. Just touching off of that a little bit, I think part of the tremendous appeal to this film and other films, um, you can point to a handful of other films like this too, but I love it when a movie shows you how things work. You know, just yeah. the, the breakdown of system by system, how the FLN operates, uh, how the uh, the police operate, and how those, you know, The triangles. Operate. Yes, the, 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 the triangles, the, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, yeah. It's like such a helpful way to position yourself within the the counter-terrorist measure, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's long stretches of these movies that are kind of like the the how the casino works in casino sequence, you know? <laughs> I, I'm just a sucker for that. And, and, and even if you're following something that's that's fairly horrific like this, it's it's. I mean, this, I feel this film was screened at the Pentagon and, you know, to show people the, how terrorist networks work. And all, I mean, it's it's really exact and, and impressive. You know, the verisimilitude level here is just so off the charts. And, and still so uh, relevant, too. I mean, yeah, this is, this is yeah. a, you know... In I, very specific ways, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this the movie just brought up a lot of different... It's weird because it's simultaneously not quite like anything I've seen before. And all of these, like, little bits reminded me of different things. I mm-hmm. it, The Wire came to mind mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, this immersive complicated situation where we're watching both sides and how they progress. Yeah. Julia Loctev's Day Night, Day Night, which is about a young female yeah. suicide bomber kind of processing how she's going to operate. Yeah. But the other thing it, it really reminded me of vividly was a recent documentary called The Square that was mm-hmm. about the Arab Spring and like a series of uprisings, but specifically how the progression of one uprising went. And that same sort of feeling of slow burning movement, slow burning political and personal movement movement of people being radicalized and awakened and of kind of mobs being slowly drawn into willingness to cooperate with like a small group of radicals and take control. It really felt like a documentary in places. For sure. And, and like we should talk about some of the, the actual action scenes or the, specifically the explosions in this movie, mm-hmm. like the racetrack explosion. Like that is an incredible scene. I, I, <laughs> and just in general, I do not know how this movie was made. I mean, there's a whole making of on it. Sure. I, I, should, I, I should actually help. Watch all that at some point, but still, I started I mean, it before I came, but couldn't finish yeah, because I, I was also very curious. Yeah, it's just 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 the ability to restage all this. It's it's really impressive. And I'm always curious when you when you have this many people operating to create a situation that is this chaotic. Like, how the hell do you control that? One of the the making of things that I did watch talks about the, the great mystery of Ponte Carvo is, is why didn't he make more movies? And it's kind of mm. like you kind of understand when there's this much work involved in the movies he did make. <laughs> 
tremendous effort to actually to, to get one something like this made. I actually watched the same uh, documentary that uh, Keith just mentioned about Pornikovo, and I actually wrote down something he said uh, talking about his non-prolificacy, and he said one very interesting thing. He said, six years between films, it's a character defect. It's psychological. Even when I like a story, I start to work on it with a scriptwriter, and after a bit, I'm seized by the tragic question, why should this film be made? <laughs> then obviously I don't make it. <laughs> I, I think a lot more people, I think the world would be so much better if a lot more yeah. people asked, why should this film be made and then didn't make it? Yeah. Yeah. The film is purposeful. You can, you can at least give he, it credit he, for He characterizes that. it as impotence, but maybe it's also just prudence. It's, it's <laughs> okay. That happens to a lot of men where <laughs> yeah. they start to make a film and then they don't. This, the second Snow White and the Huntsman movie, why do we need to make it? <laughs> Let's just not, oh, Let's just wait, not that didn't it. happen. We, while we're kind of at a, a stopping point, I kind of want to loop back. Scat, I feel like yeah. we just kind of like blurred over the question <laughs> of why why you love this film so much. Yeah. And I'm getting it in little pieces, but I kind of want to hear like the complete picture. Like Scott Tobias, why do you love this film? Oh, God. I mean, there's so many re- reasons. Well, for one, and this is something we can talk about a little bit in terms of style. It does fool you at times into thinking you're watching something real like a newsreel or something something that you would see on the uh, on the news but of course it's much more artful than that but it's so tricky about that in that it is also a work of intense expressionism artistry as well when it wants to be you know and i, and I mentioned that a little bit in the, that opening scene where you get this just searing close-up of this insurgent who's been tortured and and who we later learn why he's so upset because he's giving up the last leader of the fln but there's so many moments in that film that um, are so unforgettable in that respect. For example, just the shot of Ali LaPointe and, and three others behind in that hideout and, and the, the focus on their faces and how beautiful the faces are. And like, mm-hmm. you know, and that's one of those things where you, when you cast on professional actors, I mean, clearly just like the faces matter so much. And, and, uh, and, and the attention to that is remarkable. The other thing about the movie, I just it just completely changed my thinking about everything. It was just it was one of those things that just was a it's so radical and I had so many assumptions about the way terrorism works and the way torture works and the way, you know, an insurgency happens. Like I, all these things that I had might might have assumed in the past or not really thought about, um, this film really kind of was eye-opening. And there's so many other things I appreciate too, about it, too. Uh, it is balanced, even though as a, as a point of view. I'm a little bit reminded of the film Dead Man Walking, which I admire in the sense, like, there's an anti-death penalty movie, but it's going to show you the other side and it's going to give you a full portrait of people who have a, who have a contrary view. And so I appreciated that, at least the attempt at that kind of a balance in the Battle of Algiers. And I just think it's just, it's just such a fascinating flashpoint for discussion. It always has been. And it's a, it's a film whose influence just, you know, you see again and again and again and again. You know, you know what this occurred to me? It, yes, that. Avatar is a lot to this movie, too. Yeah, oh, the, the, the movie Avatar? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, I, no it, I, I, I'm going to need you to unpack that like, a little again, more. Again, again, again. Well, no, I mean, I, it is, you know, it's insurgency versus the colonial force. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. uh, your sympathies kind of shift from one end to the other. And, and um, Are there aliens in Battle of Algiers? I Both of them do have big remember. blue cat people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I'm I, amazed I totally you can remember you Avatar that much. <laughs> the, but the thing about Avatar is, I mean, that is that is a film with very clear loyalties and a very, sure. very heavily underlined good-bad uh, dichotomy and uh, like I, one of the things that fascinates me about this movie is just that sense of amorality to everybody and I just don't know whether the message is you know war corrupts everyone or everyone does terrible things maybe I'm just too empathetic but I, I don't see 
the necessity of the these things on either side. I don't see the necessity for torture to get information. I don't see the necessity of terrorism to drive things forward. I just well, keep in mind that I mean, if if you are stateless and you commit an act of violence, that's terrorism, right? Yeah. Well, and I and I think the the film also kind of nods at that point with the stuff with the general strike. And oh boy, the general strike scenes. My God. Yeah. Are you being sarcastic? I am or? not being oh, sarcastic. Okay. No. The, I mean, I, I was with you on my favorite sequence being the women mm-hmm. because it's so protracted and you start to get a sense for them yeah. individually. But the scene where all of the men are rounded up from the, the ghetto effectively and shoved onto to trucks to go work the factories and the army people are just reporting in, you know, requisitioned labor has been acquired. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, that that moved me emotionally in a way a lot of this film didn't. Right. But I guess the way I'm invoking it is like they put a halt to the violence to do the general strike in the lead up to a U.N. vote Mm -hmm. on whether or not to even consider Algerian independence, not for the final vote, but just whether to consider it. And nothing comes of it. They decide not to consider it after the general strike. So I think kind of what we're supposed to take away from that is that violent resistance is ultimately more effective than nonviolent resistance like a general strike would be. I, I mean, I think we absolutely just take uh, the character of Jafar at his word that terrorism is necessary as like a spark to revolution. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the film fully understands and endorses that. And what ultimately happens with the general strike, of course, is that is that it's a perfect opportunity for the French to take advantage right. and, and identify the resistance, and uh, which is exactly what they do. So they're not they're certainly not going to press pause on what they, they're going to do uh, again a film that that could give you that sort of perspective you know on terrorism which i think many people just understand as as almost a nihilism and bar- barbarism and evil when in fact it's in this case a response by a stateless powerless people trying to uh get the colonialists out <laughs> At the same time, it's just, and we'll get into this with Detroit too, it seems so chaotic and and poorly aimed. And part of that is, you know, blowing up a milk bar. But the, another part of it is just the, the sequence with the ambulance, where the two men take over the ambulance, mm-hmm. stab the doctor, dump his corpse in the street, and then kind of just go joyriding, shooting everyone they see. Mm-hmm. And then when they're out of bullets, trying to crash into a crowd and, and killing themselves. That also is a mesmerizing sequence. But it certainly doesn't make me feel, you know, these are stateless people with no voice who are desperately trying to express their oppression. Yeah, I think nihilism and, and evil do enter into the picture. I don't think the film. I don't, well, I don't think the film is, is, is shies away from showing that either. I, I just don't know that it's quite the the clear headed endorsement that that uh, perhaps you're seeing it as. But I also see like that the overall strategy is to terrorize the Europeans and to get them out. I mean, that is the strategy. It's not a pleasant strategy, and, and, and it results in the death of innocent people. But that's the strategy, right? It also, I mean, it never take away your states. <laughs> I mean, it also results in the beatings and death of their own people yeah. who, are, who are not involved. And I think the film also makes a point to show us that and showing us Europeans calling presumably innocent people who have not uh, engaged in any acts of terrorism, calling them dirty Arab and beating yeah. them in the street, you know? Mm-hmm. The I- and at one point, bombing an apartment building, which we see, you know, dead children being dragged yeah. out of. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, like, it is engaging with the idea that, like, terrorism cuts both ways and, and, and that it comes back at you through the people that you have enacted terrorism on. And it, it doesn't come back on you. It comes back on the people that you are, in theory, representing through these violent acts, but who are not actually engaging in those violent acts. 
I, I don't think the film papers over the tragic effects of any of this uh, violence. Um, but I don't I think, think it's, it is pro-anything. Would you not say the film is pro-Algerian independence? Oh, no, I think it is. Okay. I don't think it is saying that the tactics uh, used to achieve it are necessarily justified by the outcome. Uh, that are that's justified. A, I think yeah. that's the question at the center of the film. No, I think I think the film. Yes, yeah, I think yeah, the film I, does answer in the affirmative that, these, that, these, that, these, mm-hmm. that all that all this is necessary for a revolution to happen. I don't know. Um, I don't. I just don't know that any, any <laughs> film that gives you a close up of a wide eyed toddler. No, I shortly think, before that toddler yeah. is blown up. Is unabashedly no, I'm not unabashed. I mean, it's uh, endorsing uh, these tactics. Why? Well, I think that it's clear-eyed about them. I don't think it's endorsing them. You know but what I, think else it's, I think it's clear-eyed about <laughs> a toddler, a toddler <laughs> eating ice cream in a milk bar. <laughs> and I, see, I think this film is also kind of on that continuum of like Soviet films of the 20s of the of Potemkin and all of these pro-communist films. It's a movement-oriented movie in my in my mm-hmm. view. Well, you know, as I said before, I really love the style of, of the film, which has that newsreel quality, but also those uh, those moments of expressionistic beauty, too, where you really get an artist's point of view and not just simply, you know, someone who's just simply trying to recreate a scene as closely as they can. Um, what do you take as his uh, visual strategy? And, and also, and related to that, what, what do you think of the score by <laughs> Pontecorvo and uh, Ennio Morricone? Morricone, the, I mean, the score is certainly stirring, uh, just literally from that opening sequence i just i had a uh, like a feeling of <laughs> like i like i was marching in a parade bum, bum. <laughs> yeah that, know, that energy <laughs> got the percussion in there it's awesome but uh visually i like i kept uh hearkening back to the, kind of two flashpoints one was disica's bicycle thief just that sense of of so many people seen an extreme close up in mm. in acts of suffering, not just during torture, but while waiting for the uh, the French police to discover the, the people in their hiding places, while debating whether to in fact set off the bomb and, and whether they could get away from it, while trying to get through the lines, while standing in line waiting to be rounded up and shipped off to a factory. There's just there's such a premium placed on the mechanics of hurt and the the beauty of people's faces. And it also reminded me a fair bit of Carl Dreyer's Passion of Joan of Arc in that same sort of way. That uh, And that really came up for me during the torture scenes, that feeling of of being present in the mechanics of suffering. And that's when you get those kind of close-ups that are not necessarily associated with documentary filmmaking which is a little bit more clinical or a little bit more of a medium shot he could give you these really beautiful composed uh, close-ups it's an interesting jump back and forth i think between some very dispassionate documentary filmmaking and some very in the moment in the action like when the soldiers are breaking into people's homes during the general strike that that is not dispassionate filmmaking that is not shot at a remove it's like rushing through these dark corridors with these stamping men who are committing constant acts of violence and it's it's frightening and immersive but you jump back and forth between those two modes a lot in this film i want to talk about the music a little bit too because for all the docudrama elements of this more companies not someone you want to bring in when you want to forget you're watching a movie he's going to give you yeah, a big right, exactly. movie theme but and for all the, like the the military elements this, especially that snare drum to this whose theme is this it's not you can't really point to this as either side's theme it's just musically i don't think it has anything in common with hans zimmer's score to uh, dunkirk but with both films they both this is a music that seems to be emanating from the situation more mm-hmm. more than, than driven by the characters themselves it's it's like part of the environment it's part of what i i, I love about it's the, the score. music of war yeah yeah 
I just want to highlight really quickly, we talk a lot about the sense of remove falling away in close up and like that being, you know, where you really get the emotional uh, impact of this film. But there also are some big broad shots that do have that effect. I'm thinking specifically of toward the end when we see the crowd emerging out of the smoke. And that is like such an artful shot. And it's like, in theory, it's filmed in the way that you like a documentary might be, but they're just the way that the pacing of it, how you have to kind of wait to see the smoke disperse. It's very, very artfully done in a way that I would not equate to newsreel footage at all. There's yeah. the shot of uh, the people on the rooftops, both the observers and the soldiers further back watching as they're waiting for the bombs to be set off that are going to kill Ali de Lapont and the other people hiding in his his room. I mean, that felt like something out of West Side Story, that kind of performative staging against the skyline along the roofs of the building. It's it's a very calculated and mechanical shot. It's so striking. It's so beautiful. It's so emotional. I think this film does make an effort to have the city be a character. And that's like kind of a cliche thing to say, but I think it really bears out in this film, like through those bigger shots, but also just through its approach of not spending too much time in one space or with one character. I mean, this is the Battle of Algiers, not the Battle of FLN, you know, it definitely has that, if not necessarily like physically bird's eye view, kind of a thematic bird's eye view. And I think in a lot of its style, there is some physical bird's eye view that Mm -hmm. remember the top down shot of the square while you're waiting for the soldiers to move. And then eventually they all do move in a coordinated way. There's there's some uh, crazy stuff, dude. (laughs) Monte Carlo in this movie because he he does leave you with this impression like I've just seen the realest movie ever but then he just he's doing a lot of stylized shots uh, and he has this Morricone score that that they've co-written that that is you know expressive and very much movie movie ish it, it kind of plays plays it both ways um, and gets away with it. I definitely understand why you love this movie, Scott. I'm sorry. I, 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 I've tortured, I've tortured no, you much like No, 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 uh, I, like, uh, like, I mean, and actually talking about this movie probably made me appreciate it more. That doesn't really change my opinion that it's like a film more to be studied than enjoyed <laughs> um, because I've enjoyed it more as we've sat here and studied it. But like, particularly because I know that you do value style perhaps foremost in your filmmaking. Well, uh, you know, his foremost <laughs> thing that he loves is torture. Right. And there's plenty of that. Yeah, oh, that's right. I didn't think about that. Maybe that's it, Tasha. Maybe you finally um, unlocked. I'm sorry. Did I did I say torture and torture porn? I meant extreme cinema. <laughs> uh, well, Genevieve, I'm I'm happy that you gave it a shot, uh, and I, I feel a little bit guilty uh, that 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 this is the film that we chose to pair with Detroit because we had so many good options. But I also think it's a really strong pairing, and I'm glad that all of you got a chance to check it out. This is an insanely strong pairing. I yeah. was I was really surprised at how many parallels there yeah, were. Yeah, no, no. Th- th- it's it's going to be a meaty discussion. It's a key, key movie. So uh, we'll be right back with feedback. We're recording this week's episodes a little bit early, so we haven't had time to get to the deluge of feedback we're expecting for our Planet of the Apes pairing. But we do have a couple of emails to share. The first is the rare example of a listener taking advantage of our plea for, (laughs) quote, anything else film-related, unquote, and asking us about films we haven't discussed. Genevieve, do you want to take this one? Sure. Kyle from Spokane writes, My question for you is about film adaptations. I saw the Wachowskis' Cloud Atlas back in 2012 and thought it was disjointed and hokey. Only recently did I read the book by David Mitchell, and I thoroughly enjoyed the unconventional structure and strange premises. 
the book struck me as something that could never work as a movie, but upon rewatching Cloud Atlas, I think the Wachowskis did a great service to the tone and structure of the novel, and I even like the movie's campy feel now. The multi-part casting remains dubious. So one, have you ever positively reevaluated a film after reading its source material? And two, are there any books you love that you've thought this could never work as a film? And if a studio did make that film, who would you want to direct? My mind went to Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides and Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole as two impossible film adaptations that I have no clue who could direct them well. A lot of people have taken the swing at Confederacy of Dunces mm-hmm. and yeah. I guess so far they've whiffed. <laughs> but uh, Sutter, how about, how about the first? most recently, I think. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think David Gordon Green wanted to do yeah. it at some point. I think John, with... John Waters at one point. Oh, wow. my, really? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, I love John Waters, but I'm not sure about that. But uh, let's go to the first question here. Have you ever positively reevaluated a film after reading its source material? I, that actually just happened to me. So I, I was really, really interested when this uh, this question came in. Um, so I, I saw Sofia Coppola's The Beguiled, mm-hmm. and I was so taken with that film up to the end. And then the end just kind of happened, and then it's just kind of a shrug of a film after that. And I walked out just feeling like I'd had a very empty and beautiful experience, which happens to me quite a bit with uh, Sofia Coppola. But I um, I went and looked up the source material, which is uh, Thomas Cullinan's uh, novel from, I think, 1966. It's definitely a, a 60s book. And I read the book and it the action is very similar. There were there were a lot of things said uh, in the press about the fact that one of the major characters of that book is a a black slave woman in the household, and Coppola just completely eliminated that character, mm-hmm. and thus kind of any sense of what was going on racially in the South or any sense of you know, like diversity of point of view in mm-hmm. that story, and that is a fair cop. I can also see why she didn't necessarily feel comfortable as a white woman kind of trying to tell that story. But- I have some thoughts on uh, – we don't want to sidetrack. But I have some thoughts on why it's kind of a slide choice too, which the way that film ends, without giving too much away, it's like it never happened. you know. And suddenly there was a slave there, but she's gone, and it's like it never happened. you know. It's like the South – has a way of covering these things up, you know, and, and that every assumption that film gets covered up with like politeness and propriety. And that, and I think that movie's always about how that can kind of mask these really ugly things. And I think the complete absence of that character is kind of part of a pattern. But that's that my, a really interesting thought. That's my two cents in that film. That's what I was, I was going to talk about if we ever if we had that one. But yeah, <laughs> there, there was a point because there was yeah. an earlier adaptation starring Clint Eastwood, and I really wanted to do a, a beguiled versus beguiled pairing, but the timing just didn't work out. Mm-hmm. At any rate, the novel gives you so much more insight into the heads of of these characters who are portrayed pretty accurately on screen, but the the book just gives you so much more depth on them and particularly in their backgrounds and how their backgrounds affect who they are. And I walked away just feeling like I'd read the footnotes and that the movie mm. was so much more meaningful as a result. Hmm. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, anybody, anybody else? I, my tendency is if I'm going to read a book, I'm going to do it before I see the movie and not after. So I'm not sure if, if I have a... Uh, an example. Of- There's definitely films where I appreciated the artistry of the adaptation and the choices made. Oh, sure. More after reading the book, oh. like like *L.A. Confidential* mm. is such a. a labyrinthine book and if and if you read that there's so many subplots that are you know great on the page there are probably good cuts for the movie because i think that movie is is as complicated as it probably can be without t- t- testing uh, viewers patience whereas it, you know the book is is you know four different seasons of an hbo series uh waiting to be filmed 
Oh, I have one example now that I think about it. And this actually is not me. This is a film I loved anyway. But um, I did go back and read Sweet Her After after seeing mm. uh, the Agoyan film and certainly appreciated um, how Agoyan took a, a structure that was already quite clever and just turned it did his own sort of thing with it that was quite brilliant and quite very much in, in line with the director of Exotica. Well, you know what's amazing about that is you hand that book to anybody else, any other director, and it's like, this book ends with a demolition derby. <laughs> <laughs> what a perfect way to end a movie. Yeah. You know, with a big, I've got my big action climax right here, and that's not in the movie at all. Yeah, yeah. Just, he makes some really good choices. And, and uh, this, I guess we, quickly, this last question, are there any books you love that you've thought this could never work as a film? If a studio did make that film, who would you want to direct? I mean, I guess you'd probably want the Cronenberg to direct whatever it is, because Cronenberg's done a million. You, you would never want to make this yeah. into a movie books, but uh, you know, or Gilliam as, or something like that. As long as Akiva Goldman doesn't write it, because <laughs> what what the hell is up with that dude? Why do they keep letting him adapt? He won, books? A, he won an Oscar, right? One Oscar? Did he win an Oscar for uh, A Beautiful Mind? Or is that him? Uh, yeah, I think so. I actually, I wrote a whole essay on this at, at The Verge, uh, the question of what makes a book unadaptable, because relatively recently, last year, I guess, um, James Franco made the news because he was going to mm. adapt uh, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. And <laughs> every time that comes up, again, he's not the first to take a crack no. at that book. Every time it comes up, people say, oh, that book is unadaptable. So I wrote a whole essay about one, what unadaptable means and like the different ways it's been used. And... I lean in the direction of books are not necessarily unadaptable unless it's something like uh, House of Leaves where the form of the book itself is part of the story. But that said, there are a ton of books that I love that would make really terrible films. <laughs> Just off the top of my head, the first one that came to mind was uh, Nabokov's Pale Fire, mm. which I think is one of the most brilliant books ever read. But it's literally a guy sitting and analyzing poetry for 50% of it and then a poem for the other 50% of it. And any film would – you could do it with a dude in a room more or less. Like I, I, I don't – it's not that you couldn't put it on film. It's that you couldn't make it an interesting film because it's all about the literary aspect Got of it. it. But if somebody did do it, who would – uh, If somebody did do it, uh, Jeremy Saunier, I think, okay. is the most talented guy I can think of when it comes to – uncomfortable people in a room <laughs> being tense. So you're going to screw this up, Jeremy, but go ahead and uh, give it a shot. R real quick, since we're talking uh, unadaptable book adaptations, I am going to quickly shout out a piece that all of us contributed to way back in 2012 at Ye old AV Club. Way back uh, in? Is 2012 way back in now? In internet years, it's, it's definitely It's the fifth is. anniversary of 2012. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there were a pair of inventories there. Uh, first one is how did they ever make a movie of, and that's 17 successful adaptations of unadaptable books. Mm. Oh, that uh, must have been headlining Lolita, because that was the catchphrase on, yeah. that was the poster logline yeah. on Lolita. And then the, there were, we had a secondary list called why did they ever make a movie <laughs> of, and it was 15 unsuccessful adaptations what of unadaptables. The the unadaptable or yeah, the unsuccessful the ones. ones? Yeah. I bet even get the even cowgirls well, get the blues. Who's well, on there. Keith and Tasha, you're the ones in this room who contributed to that list. <laughs> but let's see, we have from hell, slapstick of another kind, breakfast of champions, Bartleby, Mrs. Dalloway, wanted, yeah, okay. wanted, oh, God. Ulysses, 
Watchmen. But so yeah, if <laughs> wait, you, wait. Uh, how could how did I not get even cowgirls get the blues on there? There's seventeen Stop of them scrolling. Or something, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't want to give it all away. Yeah. I, I, I need to tease this five year old content for an outlet we no longer will work for. Yes, I'm sure that the AV Club is drooling over those <laughs> dozens, like, dozens like, of hot, hot like, show what, clicks. What's going on? This thing is red hot right now. That's weird. This piece from five years ago. On, on the unadaptable front, there's a screenwriter that a few of us are friends with I, that I, I won't name his name, but we were having a phone conversation once. He's like, yeah, um, do you know this book? I'm supposed to maybe try to do a pass on it called Ubik. <laughs> like, I don't think you're going to be adapting that one. <laughs> oh, gosh. I just realized who you're talking about. Yeah. Mm, boy, that would be interesting. Uh, yeah. No. Gosh. Uh, come hit me up on social media. I'll give you like 10 more uh, like books that I don't think anybody should adapt that I, I deeply, deeply love. Yeah, we're, I think we're, we're, you know, after getting this email, which we've obviously had a lot of, a lot of fun with, we were talking about, you know, doing a, an anything else film related type of show or a, I guess in the style of a Reddit AMA or something where uh, listeners uh, ask us questions like these. And uh, maybe that's something to keep in mind. For the future, ask us anything because things are going to get like send them in. We'll save them. Save them and maybe do something. Dry, dry times. Uh, (laughs) uh, We're going to look for it next February. (laughs) Yeah, February. Oh yeah, February. We'll do two two straight shows on uh, listener questions. As always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. That wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll plunge headlong into the chaos and violence of Catherine Bigelow's Detroit and see what insights might emerge on racial injustice and police violence. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Check out our fancy new updated site at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be developing a significantly more sober appreciation of Motown Records. See you next time. Uh-huh.